Hello and welcome to WXVU's ProfCast. I'm your host, Ryan, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Ian Clausen of Villanova's Theology Department. Dr. Clausen, how are you today? I'm fine, Ryan. Wonderful to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining me. So we're going to start, like we always do, by asking you about where you did your PhD thesis and what it was about. Great. Uh, take you back to 2008 when I graduated from University of Illinois and uh, obtained a Marshall Scholarship to go overseas to the University of Edinburgh and spent a good five years there. Got married during that time, mm. had a first child. Wow. And... Did you get married in Edinburgh? No, actually. Okay. I was a year bachelor there, and then I came back and married my high school sweetheart. Oh, actually. very nice. So, uh, yeah, we had to work that out. But uh, So we spent four years married in Edinburgh, and I studied in the Divinity School at Edinburgh and didn't really know what I wanted to do, but eventually settled on, you've probably heard of this person before, St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. I was encouraged to... Go back to the sources, as they say, and my interests were largely contemporary and ended up spending five years studying the 4th and 5th century. Mm. And um, so my thesis, my master's and my PhD was on Augustine, mostly the early Augustine, which is the Augustine of the Confessions mm-hmm. and a few years before that. And uh, what attracted me to that simply was the man himself, his... Um, curiosity, if mm-hmm. you will, um, his intellectual ambitions and the kinds of questions he was asking about will and love intrigued me. And uh, so I found myself swimming in that sea, which I suppose I haven't left since. Mm. But uh, my my discipline technically was theology and ethics mm. at the Divinity School. And what, what question about Augustine were you looking at specifically? Well, I was interested in uh, a line from the Confessions towards the end, most students don't read mm. book 13 of Confessions, <laughs> but uh, at the end where he says um, somewhat uh, triumphantly, my weight is my love, wherever I'm carried, my love is carrying me. Mm. Pandus meum amor meus. And uh, it struck me, I actually don't know if he's saying that triumphantly or not, it almost sounds like resignation, mm. and depending on how you read it, uh, my weight is my love. Uh, it's a very strange way to think about love, uh, especially in the modern day. We tend to think of love in terms of choices, maybe attraction, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, his love is uh, his concept of love is a lot deeper than that, and I found it uh, interesting to apply that insight from about you know three ninety seven to four hundred to his earlier works, about ten years earlier, mm-hmm. where I think this is a fundamental insight he had about the human person that sort of grew as he grew in his knowledge of not only human experience but uh, scripture and his own uh, journey of faith. And uh, so the question I wanted to know was what that meant, very Mm. basically. And so the title of my dissertation was The Way to Love. Very interesting. So before getting into that a little bit more, uh, who was your advisor on your thesis? So my advisor was a a gentleman, a man, a scholar from, uh, he was from Oxford or had been at Oxford for a while. I had never heard of him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually remember shooting off some emails during that time. Uh, those who are interested in graduate school, this sometimes happens. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. I definitely didn't know what I was mm-hmm. getting myself into. My degrees were in English and religion at a secular school. So I shot some emails off to different divinity schools thinking that might be interesting to study. I ended up picking a, a scholar by the name of Oliver O'Donovan, who I, I did not know, but at the time, and, and still is, uh, one of the most significant uh, British ethicists mm-hmm. and theologians of the 
the 20th century. And <clears throat> yeah, he took me under his wing and uh, I had some adjustments to make based on my experience in the American context. But uh, in the end, he, he proved to be a, a very steady hand and uh, wise in guiding me towards Augustine and towards some primary sources. Mm. And uh, we've kept in touch. Um, he's retired now up in Edinburgh, but mm. um, I had a chance to meet him or see him again uh, last year, and or actually I should say this year. Uh, no, when was it? It was last year, spring. Uh, I'm losing track of time. Uh, we had to. We were going to have him during the pandemic, but obviously mm. the pandemic threw that off. So he came and gave the Saint Augustine lecture, which is an annual lecture by the Augustine Institute, and he was the guest speaker. So I got to spend some time with him, very which nice. is very nice. And did his um, areas of interest influence your uh, thesis? They did to the extent that he himself had written on Augustine as a graduate student okay. in the 1980s, uh, earlier than that actually, over at Princeton and and uh, in Oxford. And so I was kind of, he, he had written on love as well. So mm -hmm. it's hard not to say, you know, he had yeah. an influence on my direction, but it was not a heavy hand. Mm -hmm. I think I found my way there on my own in some ways. Um, but he went on to, to study political theology and mm -hmm. write some pretty significant books in ethics. And I have largely stayed in the Augustinian realm, although I do do ethics and theology mm -hmm. and technology, as you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so that kind of like leads into the next question I have about your uh, current areas of research uh, and areas of intellectual interest. So could you just briefly say what they are? Yeah. Um, well, one's Augustine. Mm -hmm. I uh, edit now the journal Augustinian Studies, which is housed at... Villanova at the mm -hmm. Augustinian Institute. I took that over a few years ago from Dr. Jonathan Yates, who had done it for a decade or so. And it's, uh, you know, it's one of the distinguished journals of our, of our field, and certainly at Villanova. And so I, a lot of my work is working other people's work, mm -hmm. editing and mm -hmm. um, curating and uh, soliciting submissions and reviews. Uh, my own writing, I, I published a book on Augustine, and that was uh, based off my dissertation. Uh, whose title is escaping me. It's something to do with confession and mm -hmm. love. And uh, then uh, my other areas of interest happen to be, you know, around what I teach, really, which is uh, teach courses in technology. I'm interested in the intersection of desire and technology and um, human nature. Uh, broadly speaking, I teach ACS, so mm -hmm. we do a lot of, uh, you know, who am I questions. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. I can't say that's... It's a it's a pretty big topic of research, yeah, but yeah. I enjoy I enjoy the the experience of teaching. I think is is very much tied to how I, how I research and how I write mm. is, is shaped by what my students have to say and, and what the texts are saying now for us. So, as, as the uh, director or editor of the Augustinian, what was it called? The journal? editor uh, journal Augustinian Studies. So, I'm sure you come across a lot of lot of different writing about Augustine. Have you noticed any particular? Uh, trends or interests in uh, like the study of St. Augustine? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say he's trending like some major figure. I mean, he's always had a, a group around him. Uh, there have been interested scholars. The, I, I, probably the most interesting stuff that's happened in the last 20 years in Augustinian studies has been a, a renewed interest in his political thought, mm. which is odd because he didn't really write any political books. City of God is about the closest you get, but mm -hmm. even there, I mean, the concept of politics that we approach with Augustine with is not one that he would be necessarily familiar with. Mm -hmm. But uh, the last 20, 30 years, uh, political theology has really become uh, of great interest both to Christian 
you know, religious scholars and non-religious scholars, simply mm-hmm. because so much of our political, um, all of our political concepts, our political, even our institutional and uh, constitutional setups are uh, deeply influenced by a long heritage of not just Christian, of course, mm-hmm. but um, uh, Jewish and, and even Islamic to an extent, um, understanding of law and um, the reign of God and, and mm-hmm. uh, political rule. So you can't get away from it. And so I think there's been, a, you know, a renewed interest in how those sources are shaped. I mean, Augustine's right in the middle of a lot of those discussions. I mean, he had to be because he was in the middle of Christendom, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. if uh, even if as a kind of an echo of a voice, he was there. People were commenting on him. He was an authority until he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And you see today, particularly in the 20th century in Europe, uh, there was a revival of interest in his thought, um, either critiquing or moving beyond and and so uh, 21st century is a little bit different, but I, I would still say that's a, a pretty significant area of, of growth. And mm-hmm. it's drawn a lot of different scholars, mm-hmm. not just patristic scholars, people mm-hmm. who study the 4th and 5th century. It's kind of people interested who are more schooled in you know, contemporary thought in politics, political thought, mm-hmm. sociology, things of that nature. Very interesting. Um, and are there any particular areas of interest that the uh, Villanova Journal like, focuses on, or is it a wide variety? Well, the Villanova Journal is uh, has historically been very textually based, mm-hmm. and it's uh, the field, as I said, has grown over the last several decades, and so it's beginning to show more interest in contemporary issues. But we do also have a lot of, um, well, as I said, patristic scholars and scholars of the fourth and fifth century writing. So a lot of the technical issues um, with do with texts and contexts are dealt with there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my hope as an editor is that we can do both. Uh, we can still do the significant textual work, uh, mm-hmm. technical work that, uh, you know, really requires a, a deep training and a love of um, ancient languages. Mm-hmm. And But you will sometimes get caught up in things that won't be of interest to a mm-hmm. 21st century right. reader. Mm-hmm. And then you have others who write um, with more of a, an eye towards contemporary issues. And how does Augustine, if you want to put it this way, you know, relevant today? And mm-hmm. he is relevant um, but uh, the questions we bring to him are, you know, say as much about us as they do about him. Mm. And so to the extent that he is a, a living text for us and to the extent that we still turn to him for wisdom and are still shaped by his legacy, then, yeah, I think you'll see, and hopefully you'll see the journal do more of that kind of work mm. uh, with new, new injection of scholars. Yeah, very cool. Could you talk a little bit about your own personal method of researching Augustine or researching whatever you're writing about studying? Um, how do you how do you delve into a text? How do you like formulate ideas out of it? It's a great question. Um, maybe I'll focus that question on the kinds of writers I'm really attracted to. Okay, yeah, and they tend to be um, pretty capacious thinkers, not easily slotted into a kind of technical field. Um, I, of course, I have great respect for my colleagues and other colleagues who are, you know deep in the weeds of their own disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, specialization in the academy has made that uh, sort of skill necessary, and in some ways it bears a lot of fruit. Um, but the scholars, uh, or the writers, I should say, that I'm really attracted to tend to be both capable of doing that, but but you know, transcend that in mm-hmm. a certain way. Um, not that they're timeless per se, but they have a certain timeless quality to them. And they tend to be a bit extreme. So Augustine, okay. I think, was a bit extreme. <laughs> the moments in the confessions where you might scratch your head and say, is that really a problem? Mm. Do we really have to think of it that way? Um, and I find that attractive because I, I think even if it is extreme, it reveals something about ourselves. Um, other scholars or writers I've, I've read and benefited from uh, include 
figures like Soren Kierkegaard, the mm. Danish philosopher, so-called father of existentialism, mm-hmm. uh, French philosopher Simone Weil, and um, contemporary scholars who are writing today attract me that you know have that same sort of ambition to to really get at the at the truth, whatever it might be, and and sometimes they can be a little bit dramatic in their approach to mm-hmm. it, sort of off-putting even. Um, but uh, so I find you know dabbling in them. You know, I have to kind of limit myself unless they drive me crazy. But those sorts of thinkers, and, and just to put a, a final point on it, um, they they become lifelong companions. Mm. It's not just some sort of field that you master and, and you're done with it. It's uh, These are thinkers who you can converse with throughout your life. And there are others that I haven't, you know, caught on that other people would reference, such as Wittgenstein and... and um, um, and other figures in the European tradition, particularly um, for us, and um, they're worth it simply because they challenge you in a sort of radical mm. ways, and they have that power to do that even many centuries later. Mm. Do you find that studying Augustine has influenced your personal life and the way you think about the world outside of academia? I think so. I hope okay. so. I hope positively. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Augustine has his moments. He has, uh, in addition to being a, a wonderful thinker and the author of Confessions, he's also a dogmatist. He's a church bishop. He has beliefs. Mm-hmm. He's in a different context, facing different social and political and religious pressures. So there's no easy translation. You know, what would Augustine think now about mm-hmm. X, Y, Z? So you have to be careful with that. And I think what I, the moment I always come back to with Augustine is his first encounter with uh an ancient text, a, a pagan text, um, Cicero's Hortensius, if mm. you remember it from yeah, book three, where yeah. he picks up this exhortation to philosophy mm-hmm. and falls in love and and is, doesn't know what to do with himself. He ends mm-hmm. up, you know, turning to scripture and he finds that distasteful, so he throws himself into the Manichees. He's searching for something and uh, that initial th- sort of thirst for knowledge, for wisdom, as he calls it, the love of wisdom, philosophia. Uh, never leaves him. He references that again and again later in his life as a pivotal moment, even though it's a pagan author, mm-hmm. even though it's not the sort of, you know, part of the uh, the canon, if you will, of, mm-hmm. of what he thinks is uh, truthful literature. It was truthful to a degree, and I think there's wisdom still to be gained from that. We find wisdom where we find it, and it surprises us. And the more we try to control for it and, and sort of force sort of force it out of things or, or keep it away from uh, ourselves, I think uh, the, the less we'll be benefiting from it, mm. um, less we'll be exposed to it and, um, and all of its wildness and, and intrigue. Yeah, very cool. So transitioning now to talking a little about how your time at Villanova. So how did you arrive here? Uh, it took a while. Um, anyone who knows about the job market <laughs> knows, uh, you know, some fields yeah. are doing well, other fields. The academy can be a difficult place. And uh, particularly for someone studying the humanities or a hum- humanistic discipline, uh, finding uh, my way here, it took a few years. I, I did a postdoc after my uh, stint in Scotland uh, in Indiana. Uh, the Lily Fellows program is a sort of a two-year kind of program. That c- uh, postdocs are supposed to be preparatory for the real deal. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, uh, I had to string together a couple of postdocs, three mm-hmm. actually, before I finally landed a position here. But the the funny story about Villanova was that I applied uh, twice, actually, to the postdoctoral fellowship, the Siena Fellowship in the ethics program. And I made it to the first round, and uh, after the second time, uh, I remember getting an email from the director there 
um, whom I just saw, uh, um, recommending or suggesting that maybe I wasn't really an ethicist and maybe I'd be a better fit for the ACS program, which uh, I thought was uh, probably wise. Mm. So I applied to the ACS and I got it in the third time, um, a postdoctoral position, which was a generous one. And it is a generous one. It's uh, postdocs sometimes are one or two years. This is three, it turned into four. Um, and I was able to string together some, some years here while I was on the job market. But as I was on the job market, things sort of came together for me and a, another colleague actually of mine, um, where they had some needs in the Augustinian Institute, a desire to mm-hmm. sort of rejuvenate it and re- uh, refund it, if you will. And um, so I joined the Institute uh, in 2000 and gosh, when was that? 19, it's a little bit fuzzy at the time because I kind of started doing the work and I don't remember the contracts came in, but basically found a a full-time continuing position here. So it's a great situation to be in, but it wasn't clear. Um, And uh, of course, studying Augustine, this is the place you want to be, um, the flagship Augustinian institution really in the world. And uh, I've got great colleagues and people to work with. Very cool. So talking a little bit about the classes that you teach, you mentioned ACS is one Mm. of the classes you teach. So ACS... There's a lot of different ACS experiences here at Villanova because, of course, everyone has to take it. So how do you like to guide your class and balance the sort of stuff that you kind of have to do versus the stuff that you really want to, like, bring to the table? Yeah. uh, Everyone who teaches ACS is teaching something completely outside their expertise. Mm -hmm. So as a teacher, there's a challenge of doing that well, Mm -hmm. not embarrassing yourself. Uh, I wouldn't say I make things up, but uh, (laughs) I certainly have to... uh, you know, approach things differently depending on the era. So I'm comfortable with Augustine. I'm comfortable with uh, English literature. Um, did that in, in uh, undergraduate. Um, ACS program is really trying to be many things at once. I think you've probably experienced that. I mean, it's a writing intensive seminar. Mm-hmm. It's trying to teach students how to write. It's also a context or a, sorry, a, a content driven course. It's ancients. It's moderns. Um, no one's teaching it just to give you skill set. Actually communicate something, uh, and then it's also a your introduction to the university, mm-hmm. trying to make you feel like you belong, um, yeah. to help you belong, mm-hmm. and give you various uh, required cultural events to help you mm-hmm. belong and, and things of that nature. So doing all three of those well can be challenging. Um, the way I approach it, and the way I and what I hope students get from it is, uh, I really want to go to the basics of reading. I want I want students to rediscover if that they haven't already, the, the joys of lingering over the words on a page. Mm. And that's a pretty traditional approach to teaching, but it's, uh, I think it still has a lot, of, a lot to give us today, especially when we don't linger as often uh, mm. or as long as we should over anything, including our own words. Um, words are cheap these days, as Augustine mm. says. He <laughs> uh, said that in the 5th century. It's true <laughs> today, maybe more yeah. so. Um, we throw them around without thinking about them. And it, it's the truth for a vast majority of the writers that we take seriously today who wrote in different eras, they took their words very seriously. That's all they had, really. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it was the writing, and not many people did write. And so uh, the written word is, is precious. I want uh, students to experience the joy of lingering over it and imagining how things are being said, um, who's saying them. And uh, uh, occasionally I've experimented with memorization and things of that. Mm. It gets a lot of bad rap, um, bad feedback when Mm. I try to get people to memorize (laughs) things. But um, yeah, I like to remind people that Augustine had to basically memorize all the scripture. He didn't have books lying around. There's no Bible, a single Bible or manuscripts. 
And um, so uh, short of memory, it's simply taking the text seriously as words that are communicated, that convey something. And it's not just up to us what it means, but there's a degree of participation in its meaning. Uh, we come together communally to try to make sense of these texts, which uh, can only, they only have the words on the page and whatever we know of the context to really help guide us. So uh, my hope is for all ACS students, I think a lot of the professors want the students to, to come away. I mean, it would be, be a real win if they just didn't hate reading afterwards, <laughs> right? But they actually saw that there's some value um, to lingering over a text and uh, communicating with each other about it. Do you have any particular uh, favorite books that you teach in ACS? Well, I can't say Augustine's Confessions, and I have to be <laughs> honest. I have, uh, the more I teach Confessions, and the, the less and less I try to intrude on it. I feel like I know too much and probably don't know enough at the same time. Um, you know, I've <coughs> when it comes to the ancients, I've gotten a lot of mileage over the years teaching Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound. Mm. Um, you know this from yes, uh, yeah. I've taught it also in uh, other classes. Um, it's a it's a wonderful text. Uh, Prometheus. Uh, the titan who's chained to a rock because uh, Zeus is angry at him, getting his liver pecked out and it keeps reviving and being punished. And we talk a lot about this, sort of spec- this, this spectacle that that is and uh, what, uh, and of course, he's the one that gives us the gift of fire, which is uh, a kind of symbol for technology, but also for work. So he gives us labor. And is this a good thing? Is it a mm-hmm. bad thing? Uh, it's a good way to start students off, particularly in ACS, just talking about the basic, um, you know, this origin story that might be a little unfamiliar. And a different way that the Greeks saw the universe. It was a very, um, well, it was a, it was a pretty vicious universe. It's a lot of warring gods, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, acrimony at the top, and and hatred and backstabbing. And it's not clear that the individual emerges out of this um, with a lot to look forward to. Um, mm. A lot of luck, a lot of fate. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you turn then to the Hebrew tradition and the, the Christian one, you have a very different sort of set of, it's still, you know, still violence. There's mm-hmm. still uh, a lot of sin, as the Bible calls it. But try to get students to appreciate the different ways of understanding the world we live in. And I've, I've found that's really useful um, from the ancients' perspective. I don't know if you want me to do moderns as well. But yeah, Absolutely. Uh, moderns, on the other hand, is uh, I find more challenging, and not just because it's outside my area of expertise. I mean, I am a modern, um, and I've uh, experimented with a number of works. And uh, if I had to pick a work, I mean, we just finished. Uh, the students are just finishing the autobi- autobiography of Malcolm X, which is mm. wonderfully uh, <laughs> piercing and, and confrontational and relevant in, in all sorts of unfortunate ways, actually. Uh, but he's also that autobiographical self-narrative trope is, you know, brings us right back to Augustine. And the students, uh, I think, you know, come to really love Malcolm in a way, in a way I think that Augustine also appeals to them because there is something very raw and honest and transparent about his struggles. You see him developing and not concealing anything um, about how he feels or thinks. And this is a, a breath of fresh air, actually, in a, in a world mm-hmm. that is full of illusions mm-hmm. and um, kind of false... Uh, pretenses. So, uh, but I would say that you know, I, I shift around a lot. I find that it's it's such a such a big C mm. in the modern period, and so I'm always eager to experiment. Mm. And do you find that the students tend to have any favorite books? It's a good question. Um, I have polled occasionally, and it's it's varied up a bit. Um, I've had students. Uh, really enjoy Augustine's Confessions uh, and some students who just had no time for it. Mm. 
I find the medieval periods really hard to get students energetic about just because, well, typically because I put it right at the end of the, <laughs> the fall semester, right. so they're already halfway out of here. But um, um, I do remember getting really good reviews on uh, a book I read. I only taught once, and I should go back to it. Uh, Oli- uh, Olivia Butler's, um, or sorry, Octavia Butler's Kindred. Uh, she's a science fiction writer, an African-American mm. science fiction writer. Um, it's a, they actually made a movie out of it recently. Um, I'm not sure it's very good, but uh, they really enjoyed uh, her experiments with going back into uh, actually the antebellum South, um, mm. um, pre-war South uh, during the time of slavery. And uh, it was a, just a, a unique way of approaching the question of slavery from the, well, in that case, I think the 1970s all the way mm. back. And just the contrast and and the differences and some of the similarities and the echoes of slavery's past. And so I think those those kinds of works are, are fun to do. Um, and, and ACS allows you to do it because you can really teach any genre. Mm. And uh, I will say then the last one, I'm, I'm curious, the, the book I, I, I finally, after years of, of loving it, simply because I grew up with it, it was really instrumental in my journey of faith with Kierkegaard's works of love. And that's a wild text. And I finally assigned it to my moderns this year and that, We'll see what I think several of them really liked it, but it's a hard text mm. because he's again a very extreme person mm. and uh, takes things dramatically uh, into dramatic dramatic heights. And um, but I enjoyed reviewing it because I saw my eighteen year old self what mm. what my eighteen year old self was drawn to, and then what my thirty seven year old self okay. now sees. It's a uh, it's remarkable what stands out to you, what's the same and what's different. Mm. So moving on from ACS, what are some of the other classes you teach here at Villanova? So I've uh, had the pleasure of moving around quite a bit, and that's one of the great things about teaching in ACS is one, your colleagues are from different disciplines, and two, is that you, you tend to have a you know a chance at least to teach mm-hmm. in other programs, departments. I started out in ethics, did a couple of the intro to ethics courses um, as a postdoc, and uh, did a couple of theology courses, both at the grad and at the undergrad level, uh, one undergraduate course that I taught was an upper-level theology course on, um, I think the title was Christ in Being Human, mm. which was actually a project uh, that I had, uh, it was a collaborative um, syllabus project with uh, faculty from Yale Divinity and a few others from around the country and actually in, in Europe, because they run this course at Yale, so they wanted to try to do it at other schools, and it was fairly successful. Mm. Right outside the pandemic, though, so it was mm, a difficult time, I too. See. So we, it was a very um, different kind of course. I think it would be different now teaching it than, than where we were at then. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, as you know, humanities. I've mm-hmm. taught in uh, humanities. I'm teaching the Society Gateway right now. Uh, but before that, I taught my first humanities course, Technology uh, and Being Human, I think. Being Human in a Technological Age, yeah. called something yep. like that. Yeah, <laughs> Not the best title, but... Uh, <laughs> And the interesting thing about that was I was able to teach it both here on campus to uh, upper-level students and also in the uh, state prison just about uh, mm-hmm. 45 minutes away, the university's uh, SCI Phoenix program. Mm-hmm. So teaching that course concurrently mm-hmm. with um, incarcerated men and uh you know, young undergrad or mm-hmm. young young people, undergraduates was really fascinating. Yeah, so I definitely want to get into that. But before we do, could you talk a little bit more about uh, what you teach in the uh, Christ and Being Human class? Yeah, well, I I will just say how I organized it, um, and it's uh, actually dovetails with an important moment in my life uh, with Kierkegaard. I mentioned earlier works of love. There's a moment in. Uh, uh, Kierkegaard's works of love where he meditates and lingers over the encounter between Christ and Peter, uh, famously portrayed in the Gospels, but particularly in the Gospel of Luke, where Peter betrays Jesus three times Mm -hmm. and then um, 
most of the gospels just leave it there and uh you know with peter walking away sad but uh, luke decides to insert into that exchange this single line um where the narrator says and the lord turned and looked at peter hmm. and that's it no uh, we don't hmm. get any other elaboration um so the whole course christ in being human i centered around this, this simple question which is a question kierkegaard picks up on which is what was in that look mm-hmm how would you imagine Christ looked in the moment of his betrayal with his friend turning his back on him three times after he told him that this would happen? Um, what do you see in the eyes of Christ? And I, I kind of laid it out to the students. I mean, look, this is, you know, I was, I was you know, a degree of personal about it. It's like, this is kind of, I can fit my whole religion into this question <laughs> right here. Is that what was in that look? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the students, we did a lot of different things, but I kept coming back to that question of what was in that look. And a lot of our texts were trying to unearth the experiential dimension of the Christian tradition, the Christian faith, not presupposing that everyone had a faith, but that it's possible to encounter this figure named Christ um, kind of in the same way Peter does, which is not as a Christian, quote-unquote, as a follower, mm-hmm. true, but certainly as a confused and, and particularly mm-hmm. sort of dejected man who was um, not entirely sure what he was doing there. Mm-hmm. And so placing ourselves in the position of Peter and, and sort of understanding what Christ might mean beyond Christ or through Christ, um, other people. Gregor um, has this lovely meditation on how you know, we ought to look at the neighbor, the way Christ looked at Peter, and, um, and how do we respond to the neighbor. Mm-hmm in the same way as Christ does. And so uh, that course was uh, very much probably the most personal course I've ever taught. Um, And I really, at the end of the day, I just didn't care that much about the grade. I really wanted the students Mm -hmm. to to think deeply. That's where I also did the memorization poems. I did Mm -hmm. nine poems. We had them memorize one of them, and it worked out okay. But uh, it was, uh, we had several poetry. We did um, some just reading of the scriptures and, and talking about the scenes and certain scenes in the Gospels. So that was um, that was the driving force. I'd love to do it again, but um, as I said, I you know I haven't re- revisited it um, mm. that post-pandemic yet. Sounds like a very interesting course. Definitely an interesting question, zeroing on that one line. So moving on to being human in a technological age, which I took with you last fall. Uh, could you talk a little bit about? Is this a class that you came up with on your own? It was. So um, what was the so what was the uh, like uh, n- nucleus of it? What kind of like generated it? Well, I could I mean personally, it goes all the way back to my time in Edinburgh when I discovered um, well the question of technology really for the first time as a philosophical as a theological problem. Um, and uh, as you know, the writings of uh, Canadian philosopher George Grant mm, that I yeah. used in class. Um, I really benefited at the time reading that as a, as a young graduate student. The uh, impetus for the course is simply, I think, the realization we all have, which is that whatever this word technology names, it's um, it goes deep and it's wide and it's influential, but it's it's hard to think about in sort of deeper than sort of the devices and the gadgets that we have at our disposal. I think uh, you know it's easy to adopt a kind of naive view of technology or an instant view even just the sorts of things that we dabble in or even mm-hmm. use uh, without ever really thinking of how they shape us in our environments, our understanding of ourselves and reality. And so being human in technological age is just trying to ask that very simple question. Um, and, of course, it requires understanding what technology is beyond or deeper than the, de- the devices. I mean, the essence of technology, if you will, mm. if there is an essence. And, uh, you know, this comes out of the 20th century sort of uh, thinking about you know 
kind of post-industrial revolution changes, the rapid changes happening, post-colonialism, um, the, the world is seems to be at a rapid pace progressing. We have this narrative of progress, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of excitement around that, but also a lot of dread. You get the science fiction category. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, today we're awash in technology. I mean, look what we're doing right now. <laughs> I mean, yep. This is incredibly, yeah. I mean, of course they had radio back then, but I mean, this, we're doing this, you know, a shoestring budget in some ways. I guess, you know, we post it and it's, we have a lot of power to curate our thoughts and our opinions and our self-presentation. But we would be foolish to think that this doesn't um, sort of change things for us mm -hmm. in a fundamental way. And um, unless you just are an eternal optimist, I mean, we have certain tendencies as mm -hmm. human beings, um, certain weaknesses, if you will, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, are vulnerable to being exploited, um, both in a kind of a capitalist scheme, such as, I mean, technology and capitalism are closely linked. Um, but also just the uh, data interactions, the way we communicate with one another. I mean, these things are precious. They're hard to cultivate outside of a sort of technological ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so the course, uh, it is hard, and I probably tried to do too much, but it was just trying to raise some of those basic questions and make us aware of something I think we're all kind of dimly aware of, like, this isn't necessarily good for me. I mean, mm -hmm. you ever have that feeling and when you've just spent six hours staring at a screen, mm -hmm. watching, you know, binge watching Netflix, yeah. that you're like, I don't feel good about myself. Yeah. I'm not sure yeah. what else I would be doing at this time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, there's a kind of uselessness of ourselves. It was sort of a sense of like, what did I just go through for the last, mm -hmm. or where was I the last hour? And I think that's, um, it's worth dwelling on for, for a course or yeah. two or a lifetime. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, could you talk about the, um, process that you use to choose which authors you could include? Well, I wanted to use literature mm -hmm. because I, it was a humanities course. So I couldn't just go straight <laughs> philosophy. I'm, I, I've often thought of myself as a wannabe philosopher. I enjoy reading philosophy. I've never felt particularly obligated to know much about the, the fields of philosophy. Mm -hmm. I kind of, as I said, dabble in the people I read, as I said, I tend to be extreme voices anyway. Um, people who are outside of the sort of disciplinary has become the discipline of philosophy. And so I'm I'm in just a beginner in that regard, um, and theology too. I, I, you know, I, I wanted to have a light touch there, just because I think it, it can be easy to sort of frame a theological question in a way that answers itself, right? Like, isn't technology just about playing God? Mm. Well, maybe, <laughs> right? But you want to kind of get a few more uh, sort of pillars under your feet and steps to to sort of really understand what you're asking with that question. So literature was crucial, and. Um, you know, I found it, I, I, as much as I wanted to resist uh, assigning Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, because I know a lot of people read it in ACS, I thought, you know, this is a, this is one of those modern myths. Mm -hmm. There's actually subtitles, uh, A Modern Prometheus, as mm -hmm. you know. Uh, hard to get away from. It still shapes the way we think about yeah. technology. It really explains a lot of our dread towards it. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, all the gothic and mm -hmm. science fiction yeah. kind of dystopian stuff flows from from Frankenstein in some regards. Uh, but it's a lot more complicated novel than that, um, simply because the monster is, is so human, so yeah, humane, yeah. and so relatable. And it's it's those rare moments where the technology actually speaks back to you, right? Mm -hmm. the, the so-called creation um, of ours actually speaks, um, even though it's also doing terrible things. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's a unique angle. And I, I thought, you know, I would organize the class around three texts, the Prometheus Bound, uh, and the modern Prometheus, Frankenstein, and then... The last one was tough, and I and I, I admit I, I I'm back and forth on it. I, I chose Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, mm -hmm. simply because I think you know the, the old uh, quip that between uh, 
Orwell and Huxley. It was Orwell. It was Huxley's sort of vision of mm-hmm. of things that's more come to fruition. We're we're less suffering from Big Brother than we are from sort of our own internalized Big Brother, mm-hmm. right? We've kind of bought into the Brave New World right. system. We've sort of resigned ourselves to it, even. Um, and so, even though he's writing in very you know nineteen was it twenties or thirties, um, the book has a kind of cachet. I think it, there's a lot that can be done with it. And um, but I I have been looking to sort of what would a what would a twenty first century sort of mm-hmm. addition to that be um, a novel that really captures where we're at and the problem is of course we're at where we're at and we don't know where we're at we're right, in the middle of right. a unnameable well, present as mm-hmm. they say and so it takes years and years to sometimes know what what all this means mm-hmm. are there any books you wanted to include but just couldn't fit in the uh, course. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I discover things every day. I mean, well, I have time to read them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you find, um, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, I ran into recently um, a book called Station Eleven. I, I think they also made a TV show out of this. Mm. Uh, and it, it seemed very interesting, kind of dystopian novel that was set in the, that was written relatively recently that uh, talks, but it, it's more focused on objects and artifacts that survive. And so I haven't read it, but it's something like that would be really intriguing. Um but then I, I've also thought, and, and you actually rightly challenged me on this. I mean, the more I've thought about technology, um, I've never been much of an economic thinker. Mm-hmm. I, I Anything with numbers, I tend to shy away from mm-hmm. much better with concepts. But I mean, uh, the economic dimension of things you can't ignore. Mm-hmm. And it seems any, any interpretation of technology that's going to be worth it is going to be one that deals with, um, for lack of a better word, capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of its complexities, um, because... Um, you don't have technology or a technological paradigm like we do without the capital or the way of mobilizing capital mm. and, and, and how it um, these feed off of each other. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to make it an economics course either. So, uh, <laughs> it, you know, suggestions welcome. But yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah. the sort of thing that I think, uh, you know, you can get at through, you know, talk of surveillance capitalism mm-hmm. and the ways that we have become monitored and um, we've given over so much of our information to who knows what mm-hmm. and algorithms and yeah, yeah. it's uh, it could be worrying from a certain perspective. It should be, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You're trying to do a lot with the core, and it's very interesting. It was it was super. A lot, I read basically nothing I had read before in that class. It was a very very fun uh, like you know ride. You know, going through. Uh, actually, I had to read uh, Brave New World again All right. this semester. All right, good to hear this. Yeah, it's so yeah. it was it was good. It was fun, uh, you know, going around a second time. Didn't read it as closely. Yeah, sure. Well, you knew it was happening. Yeah. yeah. And you also taught this course in a prison. That's right. So could you talk a little bit about how the prisoners approach some of the questions differently than undergrad students? Uh, yeah, I could talk a long time about it and feel like I've not said much of anything. Um, uh, I'll point to a couple of differences, um, some seemingly trivial, and uh, and then see where that goes. Because I've found it actually difficult to talk about without betraying a little bit of my um, naivety and sort of newness to the whole situation. Um, so suffice to say, it was my first time, and, and they, uh, my students that is, uh, really welcomed me in a way that uh, is hard to hard to put into words, um, but they made that class what it was because they were invested mm-hmm. from the get-go. I was the youngest person in the class mm-hmm. for the first time, well, at least I think I was, and, um, and some of the uh, men inside had uh, have, have been there a long time, 
And so uh, for them, this uh, this class particularly was of interest, I think, because you know even though they're deprived of a lot of the gadgets that you know, we take for granted mm-hmm. today, and um, of course they're not totally disconnected from the outside. They've got friends and family who, you know, and, and children even who are you know are very much part of the technical ecosystem. Um, you know, they have their own thoughts and questions, and. What I would say was a uh, number one difference uh, right off the bat, day one, Prometheus bound. Um, uh, this is this is all very, um, in, in the best way, I, I would say, personal too. Mm-hmm. Um, they're reading in a way that they, they don't feel inhibited by um, sort of academic um, kind of sort of constraints we place on um on a way we can think to sort of apply if you will or to think through what mm-hmm. this means and what their experience has to, to say about this or that subject and so without going and dwelling on it i mean prometheus bound is chained to a rock he's being punished mm-hmm. he's a figure of both you know grotesque and, and unruly but also sympathetic he gets all the sympathies i mean how could you not find something to something attractive and, and sort of mm-hmm. disturbing about his character um and also, I would say the religious dimension of those texts. Of course, it's the Greek gods; it's mythology. Mm-hmm. So we don't we tend to give it a pass, right? The benighted ages of, you know, where you believed in more than one god or any god. Um, there, it's my. Uh, I felt um, it was a very live question. Not not so much like does Zeus exist, but like these these gods, the gods have, or a god has. You know, it really matters <laughs> to the question of of how you understand what's going on in this universe. It's not just a sort of projection of human fantasy. Um, we could have a, a meaningful question or a meaningful conversation about um, just what exactly we do believe about the divine and, and whether this capricious uh, divinity or these capricious divinities really say all there is to say about the world we live in. Mm-hmm. And um, so, um, suffice to say, it was a, I mean, I'll say something really banal. It was a learning experience, <laughs> but it was the most meaningful kind. And I, I haven't found a great way to to express it. Uh, but the last thing I'll say, though, is, and you know this because we were able to exchange papers, mm-hmm. um, I think you saw a little bit of that in some of the texts we read, particularly the uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's, the ones who walk mm-hmm. away from Omelas. Yeah. Um, that uh, that in, in the James Baldwin texts that I used in that class were the most... I don't think I said a single word for three hours. I mean, I tried, but mm-hmm. uh, we, we, the conversation took care of itself uh, in, inside. And... It was because of I think the um, <clears throat> the kind of uh, uh, I think that I think they all felt particularly pierced by mm. what was being said, and uh, it was both uh, particularly the green piece you know, with the child suffering in the basement. I mean, the it just opened up a whole array of questions for them and, and insights that uh, uh, they really confronted themselves through the text and. I um, <clears throat> all I can say is that it was uh, a text that I will continue to teach um, with them in mind. Uh, were there any particular uh, insights or moments that stood out to you when teaching the Le Guin piece? The Le Guin piece was uh, fascinating simply because the question it leaves you with, or at least the question I had them dwell on, was: uh, Would you walk away from this utop- this seemingly utopian society mm-hmm. that has this one dirty little secret, this one, right. this one's what I called sacrifice? Mm-hmm. That seems that everyone believes is necessary in order for this utopia to prosper, um, and it's actually quite easy to be honest about that question. But it, but then it's hard to be really honest about that question. And mm-hmm. so, for many of the men inside, uh, particularly ones who look forward to getting out someday, 
could honestly look at themselves and say, yeah, I'm going to enter into this society and I'm going to join the society that, you know, has put me away for however many long years and has basically forgotten about me. Um, what does that say about me? I mean, that's an incredible set of questions to face mm. and it takes a lot of courage to face them. And so we were able to talk about the nature of sacrifice, um, not just self-sacrifice, but w- what we sacrifice in order to thrive. And mm-hmm. uh, I think they were able to both draw connections uh, with themselves, but also uh, just what we do. I mean, what's this, this is what societies do. Mm-hmm. Um, we just conceal it mm-hmm. in the modern age in ways mm-hmm. that um, fool us uh, into thinking that we don't live in a sacrificial-based society. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, did Did the experience of teaching in the prison, like, make you reconsider the like your own interpretation of certain texts yes <laughs> if i say yes um without any kind of clear indication of how to go forward with that mm-hmm. um it's uh you know changes take a long time sometimes mm-hmm. but i mean even in teaching just learning how to teach something better um, you can't duplicate scenarios and a lot of classes depend on you know it, I, I want the classes to generate the conversation mm-hmm. i don't want to force a conversation that isn't happening. Um, but it, it has made me aware that, and I'll give you an example for, um, the, the, the discussion around revenge and Frankenstein had never mm. occurred to me to be a meaningful sort of topic of conversation. I mean, who, who has vengeful thoughts these <laughs> days? I mean, uh, I, I'm sure we do, but, uh, you know, having taught that course or taught that text again, uh, both inside and, and in your class, I mean, we were able to really squeeze a lot more out of that not just at the interpersonal level, but at the social level. And because it, it came to a point where, I mean, you could sort of ask the broader question, I mean, what does it mean? Uh, I mean, what is revenge, first of all? And uh, why is it this abyss that you want to avoid? And secondly, what happens when you institutionalize it? I mean, mm-hmm. institutionalize revenge with no hope of redemption, no hope of release, no hope of sort of rehabilitation. I mean, Victor and the monster, or their relationship is broken for eternity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's this regret at the end of it, but, um, you know, I think we dabble in revenge more than we, more than we know. Again, we conceal it, uh, we hide it, um, but we, um, uh, we're as guilty as, as, as they were as sort of indulging it. Mm. And, um, were there things that the students, the, the undergraduate students, um, seem to overlook in, in texts? <laughs> you, want me to, you want me to jump on your, <laughs> no, on your a cohort? Bit, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, well, I mean, yes and no, of course. Uh, life experiences are in some ways completely different. Uh, stage of life, mm-hmm. even more simply. And so that would be, be silly of me to expect, although yeah. I probably once or twice said something like that, just to, just to cajole you, just to, just to get you going. Um, well, look, I mean, the, the priorities are different in some ways, and we know this. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we always have... In classes, we have uh, we have multiple classes. We have our futures, particularly upperclassmen, are mm-hmm. looking for their futures and their disciplines. Um, not a lot of people focusing on the humanities, um, but that is not to say they don't have a love for it. So, yes, the questions were different. Um, I think the <clears throat> I think the one thing that I uh, you know that I've had to tell myself is to to watch out for any sort of cheap cynicism. Mm. I'll put it that way, mm. and I'm not saying your your our class was guilty of that mm. at all. But I mean, you can it, we can have a dim awareness that our life experiences maybe aren't as profound or as challenging as others, and, and we can kind of try to overcompensate by sort of saying everything's terrible, mm-hmm. all bad, all the way down. Um, that may be true. 
Um, but that may also be a kind of a cheap way out of really confronting um, the challenges and the questions and the good that that comes out of even bad. Um, and I, I'll just I'll just say that you know it's often the case that I find people who have been through very challenging things also have the most good things to say mm-hmm. about not necessarily the trials, although maybe they do, but um, what was wrought um, mm. through it. Yep. And um, so cheap cynicism is something I certainly need to be on guard against. Mm. So I have a question about the Tao Te Ching, which was one of my <laughs> favorite yeah, inclusions. Right. What, 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 how did you come across this? Why did you decide to put it in the course? Well, it's interesting. I, so I started teaching the, teaching the Tao in ACS a few years ago when uh, we have been always tinkering with the curriculum, mm-hmm. but we uh, you know, try to diversify, particularly the ancient period. Um, so we're not just reading Aristotle or Plato, not that I have anything against them. Um, and, and the Tao was a good sort of substitute for what I had been teaching, which is Epictetus's um, sort of stoic philosophy. Mm. Um, and uh, but it's different as well, right? Mm. And so, and that piece particularly that we read, which was about this society that you know has the means and the technology to do things better and go places, but never does, seems very content just mm-hmm. to sort of let the technology you know rust in the in the corner there and Mm -hmm. to kind of continue their way of life without bothering to visit the other cities i mean that's that's a completely uh, i mean i'll call it anti-western i'm sure it's more complex than that but it it just does not register with our idea of progress and growth and curiosity Mm -hmm. and all the things that we want to say are a part of a flourishing life i mean who wants to stay in their hometown (laughs) for the rest of their life and do the thing that they've always done Mm -hmm. that seems like uh, going nowhere, if not going backwards. But I think there's, and and this is coming really from another author um, who had first alighted me on this topic. I mean, this is a also a posture that's possible and perhaps a neglected feature of the of the Jewish and Christian tradition. Um, and I'll make a what may seem like a really um, bit of a stretch, but uh, you get this a little bit in. Um, the recent encyclical Laudato Si by Pope mm. Francis, where he makes this point, which I think is, again, a neglected feature of the Christian tradition, um, that the creation isn't just there for us. Mm-hmm. It has its own integrity as much as it is a place where we are to exercise dominion, whatever that means, right? Now, you know, in, in periods of history, we've interpreted dominion in, in more or less aggressive ways, mm-hmm. ways of extracting, you know, resources of, this is Victor Frankenstein, right? Extracting mm-hmm. the energies of nature, controlling it, um, using it for our purposes, very uninterested in the actual ecology and the intrinsic sort of worth of the things themselves. And this is really this this posture towards that which is, I mean, this is, this is a, a posture of wonder and uh, admiration, to use mm-hmm. an old-fashioned word, where you're actually just recognizing it and, and, and saying very simply, um, to quote another Catholic thinker, I mean, it's good that you exist. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Um, your relationship with it doesn't have to extend to more utilitarian or, or right. exploitative means. It's simply a recognition of the other. In this in case, maybe even the inert or the inanimate other as mm-hmm. a thing that it's good that it is and, and simply leave it there. I wonder, and this is completely hypothetical, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, speculative. I wonder if we weren't, aren't going to need that posture in the end in a bad, in, in the worst way, um, mm-hmm. to recover that sense that like, uh, we need to be able to behold things in their grandeur, um, first and foremost, mm-hmm. and maybe even primarily and exhaustively before we even begin to think about touching it. Mm-hmm. And so 
that that posture wonder is one that I think has suffered a bit in a in an age of progress in technology mm-hmm. and and exploitation. In, in what ways do you think we can recover that posture? <laughs> oh, I wish I had. I wish I had the key. Do you have any uh, any little examples? Any little bites to maybe give give our listeners? Well, I'll tell you two. I'll tell you two two little things. Um, one is from students. Uh, every year in ACS, I challenge the students and the ancients to go find a tree on campus mm-hmm. and, to, and to befriend it, which I know sounds ridiculous. And uh, it is ridiculous from a certain perspective, but there are, first of all, some lovely trees on campus. Mm, we have, yeah, I think we have some absolutely. sort of heritage status, of tree, well, the ones that we haven't pulled up yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's some gorgeous, remarkable trees. And I, and I encourage them to go find one and just sit under it and spend some time with it, around it. It's a whole life force it's been there in some cases for many many years Mm -hmm. and there's a lot going on there Mm -hmm. and again it's a bit tongue-in-cheek but it's not in another way i mean i i I recently built a shed in my backyard and i was talking to the tree next to it the whole time i felt bad Mm -hmm. actually digging up it's some of its roots to get the foundation down everything and thankfully it survived but uh you know there's some that kind of recognition, although it feels clumsy in our hands, you know, another generation or two, it might be something that is just natural mm-hmm. again. And I hope so. And I know for some people it is, it, it always has been. Uh, the second uh, sort of wonder, um, I mean, I, I'll be uh, slightly personal here. Um, it, it's uh, really, I mean, I'll, I have uh, a dozen children. I have five. <laughs> uh, I have five children. Um, and so the wonder of a child, beholding a child, um, I remember during the pandemic, my daughter, my eldest daughter, I was fretting about something in the kitchen and, and she came up to me completely random. I'll never forget the look on her face. She didn't say a word to me and she had no prompting whatsoever, but she came up to me and she just hugged me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I use that as, as an example because, I mean, I, that, of course, I broke down crying then. Who knows why? We were all <laughs> we were all grieving something during the pandemic. Um, you know, just to treasure that, with the knowledge, when it comes to children, I can't hold on to it either, except as a memory. I mean, the ch- children grow. We all grow. We all move on. Um, there's no need to try to duplicate it. Um, it in some ways, that spontaneity is, is the point. Like, you don't need to try to manufacture or force it or you know, even seek it out in some cases. I mean, you wait for it. But moments like that, when you kind of the gratuity of existence, the gratuity mm. of, of and the graciousness of it, um, I mean... Sometimes that's only a little bit that you need to get through. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the wonder I would love to have more of in my life because mm-hmm. I think my eyes are closed to it 99.9% of the time. But we all are um, because we're also f- sort of preoccupied, if you will. Um, to, to, to use a, a, a quote or recycle a quote that I don't think is attributable to anyone, but it's shown up in a few places. Um, the hardest thing in the world is to be where you are. Mm. And I think that's true. Um, and there's a lot that can be gained just reflecting on that simple point. All right. I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Dr. Glasman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Ryan. All right. This has been ProfCast. We will see you next time.